The Power Connect podcast is brought to you by Inawats. Discover the Inawats difference at Inawats.com. The fleet market is by nature risk averse. So when you introduce them to a new vehicle, new thing for the drivers to interact with, new fuel type, not understanding what the overall total cost of ownership is, that takes a lot to swallow. And if you ask them at the same time, oh yeah, figure out how to become an expert in electric power at the same, you know, while you're doing that, that's a challenge. Welcome into the Power Connect Podcast. I'm your host, Fred Davis. Episode 54 of the program, rolling along. It is December, boys and girls. We are, it is, I mean, I'll tell you what, it's just, again, I say this every episode. It just, it is amazing to me how fast this year has gone by. We are in the home stretch of the 2022 campaign. Hopefully you guys have had a great year. Hopefully you had a great Thanksgiving. Hopefully you had a good Black Friday. The whole kit and caboodle. Uh, but let's hit this thing strong, man. Let's, let's, uh, let, let's finish with a bang in 2022. We've got some great episodes coming up. You guys already know that. Kevin Cushman, CEO of Electrod, is going to join us here in episode 54. Uh, charging as a service in the EV space. And of course, we hear a lot a lot of good, a lot of not so good when it comes to the EV charging space, but they're more focused on the fleet side of things, which we know that's going to have a huge impact uh, when it comes to how fleets go about doing their business and just how what you know how you are going to reduce carbon footprints, you know, or when you add EV charging when you start electrifying fleets. But of course, then there's also the question of you know is the grid ready for that? We're going to get into all that and more with Mr. Kevin Cushman, just an absolutely tremendous human being. Great work that him and his team are doing over Electrod. I had a chance to meet him over at the Reuters uh, Energy Transition Conference here in Houston, so we'll get to that here in just a second. But before we do that, our podcast partner, InnoWatts. Look, while demand forecasting and customer insights continue to be the lifeblood of the InnoWatts mission, InnoWatts is also committed to delivering energy providers a demand-centric foundation to drive digital transformation. With their energy data platform, InnoWatts brings forecasting, risk management, scheduling, and its new profitability feature all together under one operating system. This comprehensive approach aligns your decision-making and intelligence, meaning your company saves time, drives revenue faster, and puts your team on a track to improved real-time decision-making. Find out for yourself about how the InnoWatts Energy Platform can work for you and how it's changing the way forecasting and profitability is being done. Schedule a demo today at InnoWatts.com or follow them on LinkedIn. All right, let's get right down to it. Mr. Kevin Cushman, CEO of Electrata. The company started out in 2020, right before COVID, uh, as they saw an opening in the EV charging market. Talks a little bit about how they navigated through that. But the one thing about COVID was that the one industry that didn't slow down was EV car manufacturing, which obviously paved the way for EV charging. Charging is a service model, and why fleet charging is a prime use case because of its need for reliability and resiliency. How the Electrata approach to investing into charging is more than just buying equipment and how working with utilities and why companies like Tesla and Brightdrop are setting the tone for what Electrata is doing with its electric fuel fleet management portfolio and more. And we may or may not get into a question about Miami of Ohio with a mic drop moment from Mr. Kevin Cushman. So it's a great interview. Kevin and his team, like I said before, are doing an absolutely tremendous job over at Electrata. This is a company that, you know, as we're starting to get into this this next phase, this next level of companies, as the energy transition moves along, you're going to see the pretenders, and then you're going to see the contenders, and then you're going to see the, the, the folks that are just out in front of everybody else. And I'm telling you right now, book it, take it to the bank, 
Electrata is going to be one of those companies that you're going to hear from in a very big way. So without further ado, CEO of Electrata, Mr. Kevin Cushman. So Electrata is what we describe as an electric fuel company. So we offer what's called a charging as a service, a term of art in the community uh, right now. But we consider ourselves as coming from the energy side of the equation versus the vehicle side of the equation. We're there to promote and provide what we call a mobility micro utility type of solution to fleet customers specifically. So we merge the technology, the software, the energy management piece, interacting with the utilities really as a full requirements type of relationship. So once the vehicles are selected and the use case is identified, it's up to us to determine what the correct capacity is. And we translate all of that into one cost per kilowatt hour. It's incorporating entirety of capital, energy management, O&M, and for a multiple year type contract. Walk me through a little bit about, okay, what is the process for, you know, look, I'm a company, you know, let's say the company I work for, you know, we've got a parking garage, you know, we want to put EV spots in there. How does that, you know, when we're thinking about maybe using somebody like Electrata, how does that process go about? So we, that's really where the, the company started. We looked at the, the huge fragmentation in the market between folks just selling boxes or people that wanted to do charging for a certain reason. And it was just you know, basically a DIY you know, soup out there uh, for folks who wanted to bring charging to whatever use case it was. So we started by actually building out charging systems within our home region here in the Midwest, looking at destination charging or workplace charging or even some multi-unit residential really just to build out the muscles of our business what it would take from design all the way through operations and ownership of an asset for multiple years with a reliability requirement so what it meant to actually provide reliable access uptime that would mean something to the end user so we did that to get our essentially the muscles of the business built and then we quickly transitioned over to fleets really as the essentially the ultimate use case which which function or which which user in uh, the EV environment is going to require highest reliability, tightest energy management, always going to be looking at resiliency and looking at growth that would likely outstrip one or two specific depots. It's more of a portfolio approach. So we've we've refined the business model to focus primarily on those segments because we really think without reliability, the rest of this ends up becoming just kind of a, a best efforts uh, type of a charging environment, which I think we find ourselves in right now. So essentially, you guys are kind of like an all-in-one shop where you'll put the entire, you know, the financing, the the construction of it all together. So it's it's essentially like, look, if my company needs something or my, you know, apartment unit, whatever, I can go to Electrata and essentially say, look, this is what I need. You guys go, you know, you'll obviously look at the whole situation, but then you guys can pretty much deliver an entire deal from soup to nuts and deliver a EV charging station at said place. Yes, exactly right. So the, the important pieces that sometimes get overlooked, one is the investment side. And it's one thing to say, we'll finance charging gear. And some of the charging manufacturers out there will say, okay, we'll finance it. But what that means is just equipment finance. And they're just going to essentially extend the capital cost of the initial purchase over multiple years or whatever. So there's not a lot of nuance to that other than to say, okay, we've defrayed some initial CapEx cost for us investing in the business or investing in the solution really means joining the fleet customer on a conversion strategy and saying we will invest where and when it makes sense for you guys to convert and essentially provide that incremental capacity for charging when the vehicles will rely on it and require it so it's not just saying hey we'll give you 10 boxes we'll finance them it's we will map the entire energy profile of your charging as if you were entering into a new fuel relationship which they are 
That's incredible. And, and how much of this, and look, man, I've been doing these these podcasts now for two years, and look, the EV space, I mean, look, you could argue the whole entire energy transition is kind of the Wild West right now, uh, especially from a clean tech side of things. What is, what, what's been some of the challenges you guys have uh, come across, and what are some of the surprises that you've found uh, in the last couple of years? And especially, you know, God bless you guys, starting during COVID, and I know you guys didn't expect, uh, you know, to have a worldwide pandemic where, you know, let's call it what it is, driving dropped off tremendously when you guys got rocking and rolling. Well, as you know, the, the, the only sector in uh, auto manufacturing that picked up during that period of time was EV. Sure. And they showed growth in terms of penetration versus all the other fall off that happened. Obviously, supply chain production capacity at the automotive uh, OEMs has been a big challenge. And with production and delivery dates continuing to push out as a result of chip shortages and just capacity and platform changes, that, that continues to impact overall adoption speed. That's been a little bit of a systemic headwind for us. The fleet market is by nature risk averse. So when you introduce them to a new vehicle, new thing for the drivers to interact with, new fuel type, not understanding what the overall total cost of ownership is, that takes a lot to swallow. And if you ask them at the same time, oh yeah, figure out how to become an expert in electric power at the same, you know, while you're doing that, that's a challenge. So we've seen a ton of pilots that have started, gone for a little bit, and then stopped you know, waiting on something to help them get over the hump to what scale adoption looks like. And that's really what our business model is, is, you know, there will always be phase ones, but our goal is to have our eye on the phase all. So I think there's also just this underlying, and you've seen it uh, in the EV space, there's also this underlying level of either whether it's vaporware or just kind of a BS layer to be, you know, for lack of a better term, there's a lot of fluff. There's a lot of press announcements. We've, we, we never even announced our funding that occurred. Uh, we just kind of continue to move toward getting projects going and customers uh, in the boat uh, rather than announce, hey, we've got funding sponsors, we're doing this. Um, we think there's just a lot of fluff and non-traction related uh, PR out there that actually creates a little bit of a negative equity uh, in the market. So we'd rather just announce things when they're ready to go or whether we have uh, a contracted commercial relationship underway. How much of your guys' early start was not necessarily convincing folks, but explaining to them, look, this is happening. Let's get on this. Let's get on this on the ground floor. And here's why. And here's how you can do it. Education will always be part of this, I think, at least for the next five or 10 years um, until we see one or two or three leaders within each vehicle class or use case going full adoption and saying, this is how I'm going to deploy 5,000 vehicles over the next six years. And this is why we're going to do it this way. Uh, I think there's going to be continuing education because the vehicles are changing, the charging infrastructure is changing, and the overall appetite for utilities to participate or support is also changing. So for us as the arbiter of all those things, for our customer as their advocate, we like to continue to, to bubble up what's, what's changing in the environment and just to de-risk it for them. So it, I think there's going to be a continuous education requirement, but for us, some of the other headwind in terms of education is the, all the free money moving around the market. So between the NEVI funding and some of the other funding, which is great if you're defraying the cost of the vehicle, but when you start throwing money at charging without the correct hooks associated with performance on that infrastructure, then you have this idea that, well, maybe I'll just hang out and wait for the money to fall in my lap and it'll all figure itself out and then I don't have any skin in the game where it's actually not really a commercial grade decision. You're just following the quickest path to getting money that's not doesn't necessarily have a cost of capital. So our view is put high reliability infrastructure in place, recognize it requires a return to do that, but the return has to be based on delivering the customer value. 
What does it mean for from a fleet perspective when you see a company like Bright Drop, who, if I'm not mistaken, what they signed a deal with what Walmart uh, and and Walmart, you know, FedEx has talked about, uh, you know, how many uh, how electrification has affected their fleet, uh, and they continue to add on. What has that done for your business? And I'm guessing that when you go out and, and, you know, you talk to these fleet companies, it makes it maybe a little bit easier or at least gives them kind of a pelt on the wall to say, look, it's happening and look at the companies that are doing it. And look, we can help usher that in for you. Absolutely. So you, you see, it, you know, there's definitely a sandbox feel to it. It's okay, they're doing this and they're in your space or they've they've decided to go ahead with an order beyond just like five or 10 vehicles. So what Bright Drop and the other OEMs are doing is fantastic. They're, you know, I put Daimler trucks in the same camp. They, they have a deal that they announced with Cisco Food Service of 800 vehicles, which is a significant order for class eight uh, over the road trucks. That's a big commitment. That's a couple hundred million dollars of purchasing uh, against that new platform from Daimler. So we love those opportunities, but at the same time, there's a lot of focus on the vehicle and building the vehicle program without recognizing when you're putting 20 or 30 or 40 class eight vehicles at a depot, you're also requiring three or four megawatts of power capacity there. And the power and the deployment of infrastructure is actually the long pole in the tent in a lot of cases. So those two things have to be done concurrently and planned concurrently in our view to make sure that they arrive at the same point you're you're energizing vehicles and not waiting a year to get infrastructure in place. How has the relationship with the utilities been? And just kind of, you know, from that standpoint, um, when you go in there and again, like you just alluded to, having those three, four, five megawatts that you're going to need in order to power these vehicles, yeah. what, uh, you know, how has that gone along in these last three years? As you can imagine, with a couple hundred utilities operating in the U.S. between co-ops and munis and investor-owned utilities, it's a flavor of the day type of thing. Um, obviously, California has gone way out ahead of the rest of the market because the California Commission required that the utilities publish their capacity maps. So you can get online and look at how much distribution capacity there is on any feeder in their networks from California all the way to uh, San Diego. That gives you, from a planning perspective, a ton of flexibility and ability to do diligence as you're planning with a depot. Um, do I Can I do something on this site? Do we have to move off-site and create a new hub for, for charging? And that promotes collaboration. So we're hoping to lift and move that type of collaboration to others. And we have a few uh, utilities that are meeting us in the middle. Uh, we actually have distribution engineers from utilities on our team so we can speak that language and make that translation a lot easier because our goal is to be as transparent with the utilities as possible because if they have make ready investments they have to do, we want them to feel confident that they're scheduling those and those are prudent investments. Maybe 10 years ago, this would have been a, a monumental, and, and don't make no mistake, this is still a monumental task, but it would have been a Herculean ask, right, to get people to sit down with you and, and, and take meetings as far as, hey, look, we're trying to put these EV infrastructures in. I got I to gotta believe now that that conversation is a little bit easier to have and they're a little more amenable simply because, look, it's going to happen in one way or another, and why not work with a company like Electrata who is helping making that transition that much easier? We, we agree. I think you're exactly right that the conversation and the uh, the readiness has significantly improved over the last three or four years uh, with utilities, again, outside of California. Uh, they ultimately are the winners. They get all the load. They're the beneficiaries of the largest transition of energy consumption from one platform, hydrocarbons, to the other being power. So they will create the ability to have 
continued increases in regulated uh, utility return for their for their infrastructure over time. So now it's about working with a company like ours who speaks utility, and we understand what they're looking for. We understand where to go, where not to go, and how to pre almost kind of pre bake the introduction of where we'd like to go deploy infrastructure. So we're ticking all the boxes as their teams are looking at safety, protection, and upstream investment. So we, we hope to, to make this a very much of a partnership. Of course, at the same time, though, you're no stranger to distributed energy resource management uh, over the course of your storied career. Um, will, you know, does Electrata, will they venture into the microgrid space and or the DER space when it makes more sense or it's more prudent to put a microgrid or, you know, solar, wind, whatever, a generator on a, uh, you know, on a place or, you know, in, in a location versus trying to hook up to uh, the grid? We always will look at that. So the, we kind of view those as tools in the toolkit. And when we look at how much load or how much energy a specific fleet conversion will require, we first look at what the utility will provide, what they're likely to have to build out to provide it if they're capacity constrained. And then we look at the tools in the toolkit on the DER side. So first and foremost, it's going to be storage to be able to not just provide resiliency, but load shift throughout the day to avoid those high time of use rates. But then think concentric circles, you could have additional capacity there with if there's solar on the rooftop or if you want to team up with someone to build that in. So you start becoming much more of a microgrid by default. We don't go in saying everything has to be a microgrid and let's shove as much load in there as possible. We let the load profile actually dictate the configuration of the assets on, on site that will serve that load. So it's very much an energy balance equation against the capital budget to serve that load. And is that a situation, too, where then you guys go out and, you know, contract a microgrid company to help with the construction? And you guys, like I said, you guys just kind of help facilitate it all from A to B or A to Z. So we we design, build, own, and operate. So we work wow. with technology companies. Our, our design team, we have engineers on staff that will help design these pieces. But if there are components of a microgrid where we're less comfortable, um, then we'll go out and team up. We, we're big on partnerships. Uh, but our, our VP of Energy Solutions actually built the largest utility-based microgrid in the country with Duke Energy a few years back. So we have great IP in terms of the know-how as far as what looking at what pieces parts to assemble based on the load profile given but we're huge we're a small team uh, we're but you know, we're so we're huge uh, believers in partnerships what can ev charging and what can electrod and what you guys are doing right now as far as whether it's breaking new ground and or new technology and kind of help guide this energy transition and again what's very uh, you know and what i think i think people tend to forget is still a very nascent industry in and of itself there's it's you're right there's still very very early days as far as significant adoption within any use use group even the consumer side even if you have 10 percent pickup on new car sales you're still at under five percent well under five percent of total vehicles and so the percentages are small so this is the time to actually create that reliability story in our view and that this segment only advances if you're advancing on the basis of performance so that was my focus at the at the conference, which is how do we start ring fencing all the use cases with the correct amount of reliability so the decision makers can do this confidently and make the acceleration happen quicker instead of getting to phase one pilot, stopping and looking around for two years and then saying, OK, I'll wait till this comes in or this price point hits here. Let's create a, a continuum of effort. So we're learning from each other and different use cases can provide different best practices along the way. So we're going to be seeing 
energy plans at a municipal level overlaying with transit plans overlaying with where utilities will upgrade. So if you think about a layered approach to deploying electrification for transportation, it's a multi-stakeholder conversation. So we like to work with regional planning organizations and utilities and transits, public and private fleets to try to determine, is there a greenfield and a brownfield strategy to this. So we should be looking at this holistically, even though not just Electrata would be the ones doing all the investing. We think it should be much more collaborative that way. So I think that for us would be the biggest learning, but it has to be done on the basis of a reliability standard in our view, or else everything just becomes, how quickly can I throw out the cheapest box and get paid to do it? A, where are we on grid and transmission, and what is Electrata doing when it comes to when you see this conversation about truck stops and you know where we're going with with you know again to the, to your point fleet uh, charging, where can you guys uh, factor into all this? It, it's it's a fantastic question. Uh, we we truly believe this is going to sound trite, but it's a rising tide lifting all boats as far as awareness of each use case. So if it's over the road or highway corridor charging at uh, Pilot Flying J, and we know they've announced stuff with EVgo and others, those are two, three, four, five megawatt implementations. In a lot of cases, there isn't the, the electric infrastructure from the utility there. There's going to be new lines dropped or new conductors dropped there, and new power electronics, et cetera but it's being done ahead of relatively predictable load if you think about the adoption. So the utility should, under their prudency standard, be able to recover that extension of transmission or extension of medium voltage service to those locations. That should be relatively straightforward. From our perspective, that's just one leg in the stool. The other legs include looking at the existing constraints in the distribution network is really from the substation down, which where really it's all bets are off. You have to look at every feeder you know, segment on its own and determine whether or not placing load there for certain hours of the day is going to create a, a grid integrity issue. So it's really not on the transmission side that we see the constraints as much, you know, from an integrated resources and moving power throughout regions or intra-region. It's more on the last mile and making sure that when we're asking utilities to do make ready, they're doing so confidently and we're actually giving them as much predictability to that load as we can. So that's that's how they plan their system. They look at line segment by line segment, what load is likely to show up there. And so it's our job to actually promote more visibility for that reason. So do you think there's more being done right now than is being reported as far as that is concerned when it comes to these, these power truck stops and being able to electrify this uh, ongoing boom? I think it's early. Uh, I think there's there's probably more capacity in the systems at that level than there is downstream of that substation level. So I think where you think about over the road as maybe an early adopter, that to me is more about how long the runs have to be and how much right of way you have to establish to be able to drop additional conduit through existing corridors if the, you're the utility, how much visibility to revenue or to load they're going to want to see. So I say, if I'm pilot flying J, oh, I think I've got five megawatts that I'm going to need, and it'll be fully subscribed by 2030. How does the utility govern how quickly to deploy that, that conductor to that site? So that's the negotiation between utility and property owner. Um, but the fortunate thing is, in those cases, they are typically dealing with existing real estate. So it's just adding additional capacity to existing real estate. So then it's just about, um, do you have enough capacity within the system to do that? And I think, again, the way, even though you know, Texas is a little different because they can't import, import power, but most every other part of the country, you have the transmission flexibility that can be planned around. And, and the best part about charging is it's dispatchable, it's curtailable, and it's manageable. 
And, and again, I guess I go back to this, is that it, it seems like this is another opportunity, because like I said, we've, we've all been to truck stops. I mean, you know, you would think that you could put a microgrid on a lot of these properties. I mean, yeah, absolutely good. And battery storage and, and with the technology that continues to evolve, I got to believe with the breakneck speed at which it's happening, I understand that, look, I was, in, I was a newspaper reporter for 10 years. I understand if it bleeds, it leads. And, it, and you know, look, we're, you and I are talking about it right now. And I think that was, you know, the one thing I appreciated about the Energy Transition Conference was when you get, a, you know, when you get folks in this industry are not panicked. They're vigilant, but they're not panicked. And I think part of the problem with this energy transition conversation is, is that panic tends to sink in and lead the conversation when there's a lot more folks like the Kevin Cushmans and folks in the world who are help leading this charge behind the scenes to where maybe it's not as doom and gloom as we've been led to believe. It's really not. And, and you know, engineering, right? Engineers are the most uh, humble and less likely to jump out in front and say, oh, you've got it all figured out. No one, no engineer is going to do that. Right. But their utilities specifically are built for the ability to handle cushions and, you, you know, they're built to peak. And the one thing in terms of resiliency that we're seeing in Houston's a great example is that the Houston kind of master energy plan or energy resilience plan that's coming out is really going to try to attack multiple facets of what you're describing. So it's not just electrification of transportation with the transit system or maybe the school district, but it's also creating this idea of layered distributed resiliency that could serve more than just the insurance purpose. It can actually serve a day in and day out purpose. So we think we're seeing communities start to mobilize around this multi-purpose investment and include public-private partnerships and groups like ours as part of the conversation because they know that we're interested in deploying capital against relatively visible use cases like that. So we think that it's easy to get overblown on locationally specific crises or constraint points in, in the grid, and that's easy to extrapolate and say, well, the whole grid is falling apart. Like California, there's a good reason why Diablo Canyon is still working, right? There's, they recognize that that ramping capacity is an issue. Lessons to learn, but I think it's... These things are changing not so fast that we have to panic. All right, we'll start winding this thing down. Um, again, you've been in the energy space in some form or fashion for the last 25 years. And so uh, whether it's been distributed energy resource management, as we talked about before, uh, you've worked on the finance side of things, you've worked on the analytics side of things. Um, I guess two-part question. One, what was it about the Electrata opportunity and kind of how did it come about, this CEO role? And obviously, you've, you've taken and run with it. And how did your previous experience over these last 25 years and having such a variety of roles that you've had help you prepare for this particular spot? Well, that, that makes it sound like I actually planned this in advance. And, you know, there's all kinds of foresight. Just, you know, again, OK, let's run with that. Um so my background, you know, I've been around for 20, 20 plus years in energy tech and was part of a corporate venture group at the predecessor utility to Synergy. So that gave me exposure to a lot of things. And what this for me personally is really, I call it a capstone moment. So between the distributed power, alternative fuels, energy analytics, and so forth, it's all kind of merged in one place. And the coolest place to apply all that scar tissue and experience is in electrification at the edge of the grid. So my career has been focused primarily at the edge of the grid. And this is the biggest challenge that the grid edge has faced in the last 50 years. So I think it's it's been a nice serpentine path to this point. And that's really, I've, I've, half the team here are folks I've worked with in one, con, uh, one capacity or the other throughout this journey. And that was really the founding story of Electrata, which was a lot of folks 
we've been in the energy space or energy services space, looked around specifically in our part of the country and said, there's just no infrastructure to handle the inbound demand from electric vehicles. Let's see if we can build a portfolio company to address all the gaps in the service you know, platform or the fabric of what's being offered to drivers, or especially as we get to fleets, and see if we can merge this into a full reliability-based ownership environment. So it was a different model. It's definitely an asset-heavy model, which a lot of folks are running away from. We're actually running toward it because we don't think we get to ask to do the cool stuff, you know, in five years, like transactional markets between vehicles and grid and all that kind of stuff that's out there until you own and perfect the ability to deliver against assets in the ground. So that's really the premise of what got me here uh, as a great next step for me, but also why the business was started initially. All right. So 2022, we're getting ready to uh, put a bow on what's been a very, very interesting year. Just, I mean, just, I mean, year in general, I mean, when energy notwithstanding. Uh, 2023, look, we may or may not be in, in a looming recession. It doesn't, who knows? I know this much, though, from everybody I've talked to in the energy space, uh, you know, ambition, uh, excitement has never been higher. And and again, look, we're on the verge of, of, of generational change when it comes to the energy sector. What's on tap for Kevin Cushman and Electrada in 2023? For us, it's continuing to work with our customers and uh, identify those programs that they're confidently able to move into with our sponsorship. And it's about building the base for us. It's just literally blocking and tackling. We have a great model in place. We we've Our financial sponsor is BlackRock, so we have a fantastic pool of resources at our disposal to deploy against the model. So now it's just about growing the business and doing what we said we were going to do and delivering uh, slowly but surely. So we, there's a ton of opportunity out there. There's a ton of consolidation happening in our space. Uh, for us, again, it's just back to delivering reliable state of charge for vehicles. Might sound boring, but uh, we think reliability is going to be a new sexy term at some point. No, it absolutely will be. Almost as sexy as this last question that uh, we've got to ask because I've got an extra minute or two, so let's just do it. Um, again, you are a proud Miami of Ohio graduate and, uh, you know, kind of, I guess the less sexier Miami when we think about it, but uh, we'll save that. Oh, for another, oh. Hey, I, again, I'm just, just you know, I'm sure you've been to South Beach on more than one occasion, so I don't not, not say anything too crazy there. Uh, but when I, you know, again, I'm a former sports radio host. So, of course, you know, when you said you were a Miami of Ohio grad, the first two names that popped in my mind were, of course, uh, you know, Mr. Wally Zerbiak and, of course, uh, Big Ben Roethlisberger. And then I completely forgot about Ron Harper. So of those three, who is the greatest Miami of Ohio athlete? It, it, you know, they're hard to compare. I think there were bursts of excellence. I think you have to look at Big Ben's long longevity as exactly. far as high, performing at a high level. And that's that's a cool one. But um, there's also been some history, you know, back into the 60s. You have group, uh, superstars like Wayne Embry, who was an early NBA okay. uh, star. But actually, Miami is known more, I will have to say. As being as being the cradle of coaches, so oh between, well, they have had it. Who uh, get, rattle right off some names for me, Eric, real quick? Era Parsegian, yes. Paul Brown, okay, uh, okay, uh, Bo Schembechler. That's uh, currently John uh, uh, John Harbaugh and uh, Sean McVay, both Miami football players. Okay, so you have this great cadre of co coaches that have gone from Miami and gone on to bigger and better things. But uh, it's quite a legacy. No, okay. You know what? I completely forgot about the number of. You know, people forget that in Ohio. Uh, look, we know how much Texas gets loved up. We know about California. We know about Florida. But it, look, it. it 
I think Ohio's a number four, and it's not even close when you talk about the impact and the sp- – I mean, hell, like I said, I'm a Chiefs guy, and last I checked, Travis Kelsey might be the best tight end of all time when it's all said and done. Yeah, Cleveland Heights, you know. And let's right not up, forget right about Youngstown road. State. I'm telling you right now, one of the craziest little towns I've ever been in was Youngstown, Ohio. <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite the cauldron here. Um, and, you know, I'll have to close because you mentioned Miami, Florida. I will have to say this is the calling card of our school, which is Miami was a, it was a university before Florida was a state. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Kevin Cushman. You can catch all of the Power Connect episodes over at Apple, iTunes, Spotify, and, of course, on Google and on the website, thepowerconnect.net. And if you listen to us on Apple, and we know that a lot of you do, leave us a five-star rating. Why? Because we think it helps with the algorithm, or at least that's what we've been told. And, hey, we think we do a pretty good job. Uh, as far as shows coming up, look, we've got some great ones that we've been working on, kind of sitting in the hopper, trying to get some stuff done. Uh, Sid Kitson from Kitson & Partners, Brad Wills, as well as Phoebe Yu and Cat Day, from Etitude. So stay tuned for all those. And then, of course, we've got a couple others that we're going to have in the hopper that we've got uh, interview-wise coming up as we plan to finish 2022 in a big way with some announcements coming up very soon as well. So definitely stay tuned for that. This has been the Power Connect Podcast, connecting the energy transition one conversation at a time. Wake up, all the builders. Time to build a new land. I know we could do it. If we all lend a hand, the only thing we have to do.